The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the South Side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes May 10th. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is April 16th. We just got that confirmed, the year of our Lord 2020. Happy to have you with us here for another live edition. We have got about as jam-packed a show as we've had in Kyle and I would safely say the last month, and that may surprise many of you because there is no college football going on, but yet there is so much going on. We're happy to have you here. If you're already here, do me a favor, like the show. That's just that little thumbs up button, and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. I'm going to plug the podcast later because I've got some things that I need to say about the podcast and maybe some ideas you guys ultimately drive this show. You guys are ultimately going to drive decision-making for the podcast, too. So we've got a whole lot to get to. JT Daniels, just a few hours ago, entered his name into the transfer portal. That's the USC quarterback, one of the USC quarterbacks. So I'm going to touch on that towards the end of the show. I've got some Q&A coming, some really good stuff in the chat here when we initially went live, which we do about 15 minutes before every show actually goes on the air. So I'm going to hit some of that. I'm also going to talk about laughable criticism surrounding Tua Tungavailoa and Joe Burrow. In case you guys haven't noticed, it doesn't really pay this time of year to call elite players elite players. And so squeaky wheels get the grease, unfortunately, and there are some squeaky wheels out there that we need to address. So we're going to do all that, and we're going to have uh, some really interesting comments that are largely echoing what we have shared with you on this show, but this time it's from the athletic director at the University of Texas, so maybe if people haven't already been paying attention, they will pay attention now. Happy to have you with us. Let's get into it. We're going to start the show tonight with one of your favorite topics, and judging by my email inbox and my Twitter direct messages and even Instagram direct messages, that is valid. You guys love to talk about SEC bias. So we're going to lead the show tonight. SEC bias. Now let me quickly give you a backstory. The other day on Twitter, I had a little back and forth. We were, I think, initially talking about expanding the college football playoff, and you know how against that I am for a myriad of different reasons, if you want them listed, some of which at least go back and watch the last live show. So here's what happened. Someone criticized the Southeastern Conference for not stepping up to the plate when it comes to scheduling out-of-conference games. I've always found much irony in this claim because as everyone criticizes SEC out-of-conference scheduling, they never acknowledge the conference schedule. For example, someone actually pointed out to me that Texas A&M played, I don't know who it was, Lamar, some, some FCS team from this past year. And I said, really, this is the road you want to go down? This is the hill you want to die on? Texas A&M last year, do you guys remember this? They, of course, played Alabama in the regular season. They have to do that every year. It's a rule. It's called a division game. They had to play LSU. Got to do it every year. Had to play Auburn. And if you want to go down the out-of-conference route, do you know who else they played? If that wasn't bad enough, they went ahead and scheduled Clemson. So they played three or four or five playoff caliber teams. Guys, I don't care if they scheduled a couple of high schools. I really don't. I don't say that facetiously. If they actually added Katy High School onto the schedule... After they went through all that, I wouldn't care. So a lot of folks 
started criticizing eight-game conference schedule versus nine-game conference schedule, scheduling FCS teams versus not scheduling FCS teams. And really, it's never mattered to me much when it comes to the SEC because largely, especially in the Western division, you're going to get enough strength of schedule push, in my mind, from just your division schedule that I've never really cared who you play out of conference. Having said that, pretty much every major program down here that I can tell has stepped up. And they do play pretty good out-of-conference competition. You're going to find your exceptions. I'm going to find the overwhelming majority being on the other side of that fence. A&M just played Clemson. Georgia's got like 100 home-and-homes coming up with all kind of elite competition. So let's get the scheduling dynamic out of the way. To me, anyone who questions the validity of an SEC schedule is like a flat earther. Why would I waste time arguing with that? So here's what happened. What happened ultimately, as is often the case, is claims of SEC bias were thrown at me. Now, I want to start off by telling you very plainly, so there's no misunderstanding, I have got strong SEC bias, very strong SEC bias. You don't need to accuse me of it. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to tell you. But yet you rarely hear me talk Kentucky football on the show. You rarely hear me talk Vanderbilt football on the show. I don't think we've done a Missouri segment in quite a while. So which SEC teams are we talking about? I've talked Ohio State, for example, a lot more than I've talked about Tennessee lately. It almost seems like we just care about the good teams. I think this is the best conference in America. Therefore, I do have a strong bias, aside from where I grew up. I have a strong bias towards talking about them, just so we're clear on that. So let's move on, because that's not really what you should care about. What you should really care about is, is there fairness? Not does someone like your team or not. Not does someone have bias for or against your team, your rival, another conference. Is there fairness? Think a lot of times about watching a broadcast of your team and you have a duo in the booth and you either, well, most of the time you don't realize that they like your team or not. Most of the time the claim is fill in the blank. You know, everyone in the South thinks Gary Danielson, the color guy for CBS, hates their team. I've never cared at all about whether Gary Danielson is rooting for, secretly or openly, the team that I pull for. What I've cared about, always have and always will, with an analyst or anyone else is, are they fair with a college football playoff committee member? Don't care who they root for, are they fair? And as long as an analyst is giving the action to me on the field straight, I don't care if I know for a fact he hates my team. Is he fairly critiquing? Is he fairly analyzing? All I care about. A lot of people go a step further, and they want to believe that you either love or hate their team. Most of the time, shades of gray at the very best. But let's talk about this for a second. So I get some claims thrown at me the other day. I wrote them all down. I said, this will make good fodder for the Thursday night show. The SEC is overrated because they play FCS teams to boost their record. We all know pretty much that's garbage, so let's move on. The SEC bias, though, particularly in the media and in the college football playoff selection process, is really what I wanted to dive into. So let's say it out loud, and I want you to think right along with me at home there, driving around in your car, however you're consuming the show. Do you believe that there is a concerted effort in the college football world to prop the SEC up and, more importantly, not from the media side of things, but from the college football playoff side of things, do you believe there's a concerted effort in the college football world to give them an inside track or just outright fix it where they have spots pre-selected for them at the table? Yes or no? You can decide in your own mind. We're not in a situation now where we have a live studio audience where they can answer. My question 
For those of you who truly believe that this sport is largely rigged and predetermined, A, I don't think you actually believe that, and I'll get around to that in a second, but B, for the time being, let's say you claim it is. Who is in on it? By default, for anything that's fixed, for anything that's rigged, there has to be somebody in on it. And with this SEC bias, overwhelming, as it sounds to me, based on how many people mentioned it to me, got to be a lot of people in on it. So let's talk about it for a second. A lot of people throw around media bias, and to me, that's largely irrelevant because you have a system now where the media no longer votes in a poll that determines anything. We're post-BCS era, we're post-AP poll era, and so you could argue that, well, maybe they still have influence, but as opposed to what it was like 20 years ago, the media influence, even if there is extreme bias towards one conference or the other, and that changes like the season, more on that in a second, even if there is that, we're in a post-BCS, post-AP poll era. Right now, there's a committee of people that decides the playoff, so it shouldn't matter. But let me ask you this. Let's just go down that media route for a second. Let's go down that rabbit hole. Who's in on it? Who is it? Who's really pulling the lever? Is it right out in the open? Are they behind the curtain over here? And again, I ask, for all the SEC bias, why does the SEC bias extend to Ohio State? Buckeyes get plenty of coverage on this show and elsewhere. Clemson, over the last half decade, seems they've gotten a fair amount of attention, does it not? Colin, I think we've heard Clemson's name more than a few times. It seems to me like Oklahoma has gotten a fair amount of coverage. Could I take you back... I guess it's been 15 to 20 years now, the early to mid-2000s. Most of you were around at the time. Many of you were old enough to understand what you were watching at the time. Do you remember, like I do, who dominated the sport? Do you remember who the sport revolved around in the early to mid-2000s? It was USC, and I don't mean the one in Columbia, South Carolina. Let me tell you what people in the South said back then. People in the South People where I was from in Columbus, Georgia, people in Tuscumbia, Alabama, people in Franklin, Tennessee, and everywhere around the South, you know what they said? There is media bias against us down here in favor of the lights and the glitz and the glamour and the Hollywood appeal that is University of Southern California football. And you know what? They were right. We were right. And do you know why? Programs like Alabama sucked when Southern Cal was dominating. No one in 2003 was trying to push Alabama into the BCS championship game. They may have been trying with USC. Point being, USC had to be good long before they received the benefit of any bias. Just like Alabama and anyone down here in the South has to be good before they receive the benefit of any bias. What happened is my question. If there was extreme media bias on the left coast in the early to mid 2000s, did people change their allegiance? Did folks just decide they wanted to become Georgia fans? Was there a natural transition from being a Texas Longhorn and a Southern Cal Trojan fan to, you know what, I think I'm going to go pull for Florida or Alabama. How did that happen? It's almost like programs in a cyclical fashion, which is the way the sport always has been and always will be, tapered off and others got really, really good. And maybe in a region of the country where there is, per capita, more fan passion and interest and desire and a rabid nature to win at all cost mentality that is so prevalent here, maybe that tide ended up, as we show Nick Saban in Alabama on the screen, that tide, figuratively speaking, was able to raise a lot of boats. 
But let's continue because the college football playoff, again, is what this is all about. And that is the season, college football playoff selection season, where you hear more so than any other time in the year, there is SEC bias. This team gets benefit of the doubt. This team doesn't. And so, again, I ask, where and who really is the better question? Who is in on the SEC bias? Think about the college football playoff selection committee. Who's on it? Pat Dye, Gene Stallings, Vince Dooley? No, none of them are on it. In fact, I've got last year's college football playoff committee here. You stop me when you hear the SEC bias. Gary Barta, Iowa AD. Uh, Paola Boyvin, Arizona State faculty. Tom Berman, Wyoming athletic director. Joe Castiglione, Oklahoma athletic director. Rick George, Colorado athletic director. Ken Hatfield, former Rice, Air Force, Arkansas, and Clemson head coach. Ronnie Lott, former USC DB. We've got the Arkansas State athletic director here. We've got a former Army chief of staff. We've got R.C. Slocum, A&M coach and interim athletic director. That is the first whiff that I've had so far of SEC allegiance. We've got Todd Stansberry. He's the Georgia Tech athletic director. Scott Strickland is the AD at Florida. There's two. And then we've got the former Penn State offensive tackle, John Urschel. Who's in on it? I didn't sense a ton of overwhelming SEC flavor in this list. Did they all just get together? Did a former Penn State offensive tackle and a Georgia Tech athletic director and a, a bunch of dignitaries and ADs from out west, did they get together and say, forget about where we're from and forget about what would be in our selfish personal best interest. We got to be in the tank for the SEC. But yet some people still stand by this argument. So here's my final question. If I cannot convince people, I mean, the NFL's got to be in on it too, right? Because when I look at the NFL draft, it's littered with SEC players top to bottom. You have not seen this year's draft yet, but you, as well as I know, who's going to dominate the field? It happens every year. Are they in on it? I think I did some rough math earlier today. Over 70% of NFL franchises are out of the SEC blueprint, footprint, whatever you want to call it. Are they still in on it anyway? It's got to be a really concerted effort. And this is a really big operation to have a lot of folks that have nothing to do with SEC football and all the NFL general managers and scouts with their jobs on the line, by the way. Media members, coast to coast, everyone's in on SEC bias. And if that's the case, which of course is laughable, but if you're going to stick by it, and if that is the case, why do you watch? Because a lot of you if I were to ask you if you watch pro wrestling right now, would laugh, which is fine, and I would ask you, what you're laughing for? Why don't you watch pro wrestling? And you would say, well, it's fake. I would argue there's a difference between fixed and fake, but you would argue, at the very least, it's predetermined, it's choreographed, the outcome is already known before the match starts. Why would I watch that? Which is fine, to each his own. But the same folks who would laugh at watching pro wrestling claim college football's rigged, and yet you watch it every day which in and of itself is how I know you don't really believe what you're saying. Because if you really believed it was rigged, you wouldn't watch. Let me ask you this. If I were to be able to tell you in this thermos that I have absolute truth, God has placed absolute truth in this thermos, and whatever is real is in there. And tonight, we're going to be able to open that thermos and pour out the true answer as to whether this entire process is rigged for the SEC's benefit to get in this playoff if the real answer is in here and you had to bet your life savings one way or the other, what would you bet is in that thermos? What would you bet? 
life savings on the line. I don't know what that's worth right this second, but life savings are on the line. You know this is not rigged. And you know that even though there may be some favoritism that is earned, I would argue it's not given, it's earned based on benefit of the doubt that's garnered after a long, lengthy track record of success. I don't have a problem with people getting benefit of the doubt or programs or conferences. There's nothing rigged about this. It's tilted towards the best. And the best continue to do what the best do. Just like attention in this sport goes towards the best. We talk about the best on this show all the time. I can tell you without having ever seen our blueprinter outline for this season, we're going to talk LSU a lot. We're going to talk Alabama a lot. We will talk uh, Georgia a lot. And we probably will talk Florida a pretty good deal. A&M, ball's in their court right now. You know who we probably won't talk a lot about, though, is Arkansas. I don't think they're going to have a particularly good year this year, and I don't know what we'll do with the Mississippi schools. And the point is, if they got that SEC helmet sticker on the back and SEC bias is supposed to be binding, then why is our attention going towards the bigger programs? For the same reason, we're going to talk a ton about Clemson and Ohio State and Oklahoma, because they're dominant, and we care about dominant. That's where our bias lends us towards, dominance. So those are the programs that we care to talk about. Let's move on. Be honest with you, I probably spent about five minutes too long on that. Got a lot of people watching tonight. We appreciate it. Uh, I am going to get to really a whole lot of stuff, so let's keep it moving here. I'm going to tell you something about the podcast in a few minutes. Uh, right now, you know what? Let me save it because I said a few minutes from now. More on the podcast in just a few minutes. So I was looking at our buddies over at Horns 24-7 today. They did a great job the other day, by the way. If you didn't see it, the video is on the channel. Go watch it after the show. Tom Herman, Texas head coach, joined the entire Horns 24-7 staff, did like an hour-long Q&A, which is quite literally where through their message board and through the YouTube live chat feed and their Facebook live chat feed, Tom Herman just sat on his patio and answered questions from you. Now, they did a great job. Taylor Estes and Chip Brown over there did a great job with it, which I was very glad for. Number one, because it helped the channel. Number two, I knew other head coaches were watching. And sure enough, other head coaches were watching. And guess what happened? After that Tom Herman video was a big hit, guess what happened here at the 24-7 Sports Studio? We got a lot of calls from other head coaches. And I know some head coaches are watching this right now. We're ready. We're ready to host you. If you're ready, I know good and well what you're doing. You're sitting in your kitchen right now. You're sitting in your living room. You have, I'm not going to say nothing better to do, but you have a lot more time on your hands. And all you have to do is uh, turn this on or this on. Just crank Zoom up, Skype, whatever the case may be. Happy to do it with you. Because believe it or not, we have some free time too. But I'm going to get to more in just a second about not only this channel, but about the uh, podcast. So our buddies over at Horns 24-7, though, back to what I was talking about, they had a report today. Chip Brown has a report today. In fact, I printed it off. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can go there and read it for yourself. I believe it's free uh, for everyone to read there. But the AD at Texas, Chris Del Conte, told the football team, and this is a quote now from Chip Brown's piece over at Horns247.com. Texas AD Chris Del Conte told the football team this week there will be a football season, according to multiple team sources. The piece goes on. Del Conte met with the players this week and told them football will happen even if it starts in January or February of 2021, one team source said. Piece continues. The indication internally is July 1st is the earliest the football team could return to campus to start working out and taking part in non-contact workouts. This is per a source. This is not a direct quote from Del Conte 
to Chip Brown per se, but I'm telling you right now, Chip Brown's about as plugged in as anyone out in Austin, Texas, so you can take this to the bank. I'm going to read a few more things here, then I'm going to get to my points on this. The football team was told there will be an attempt to play the season in front of fans, which could mean delaying the start of the season as late as January or February, if necessary. Reason? The complete loss of the 2020 football season is, of course, worst-case scenario and would put every athletic department, including even the biggest revenue-producing programs, into a financial pinch that could result in the reduction of some scholarship sports. I still think, up until recently, maybe even including now, what's being most understated in this entire situation, when we're talking about is it going to come back, when is it going to come back, how readily would they just allow a football season to vanish? They can't. That's the whole point. Even the biggest revenue generators out there, even the huge brand names, the ones you see coast to coast, they're not in a situation where they can afford to lose a football season. They're not. Okay, Akron's not, Cincinnati's not, but neither is Texas, neither is Alabama, neither is USC. None of them are. So it's going to happen at some point. I told you a week and a half ago, I think it was on the Sunday show, I had talked to some administrators that very afternoon, and they said, short of you know a deep impact or Armageddon-type scenario where an asteroid just completely takes us out, you know, if status quo largely remains here, and COVID-19 is what we're dealing with, so the enemy's right there. Uh, we're going to make a season happen. Just don't know how it's going to happen. Don't know when it's going to start, if it's going to be in front of fans, but they've got to make it happen. So now, here's what the most difficult challenge is. Synchronicity is going to be the first hurdle that everyone has to clear. Synchronicity meaning this. College football is not just this monolithic organization in which everyone moves at the same pace and everyone operates according to the same drumbeat. You've got conferences. You've got even a wide geographic region within a conference. Think about what the difference is right now in being in West Virginia versus being in the middle of Oklahoma. Well, those states house teams from the same conference, that being the Big 12. Synchronicity, and by that I mean this, is the biggest hurdle. What is right now a reality and what could four months from now be a reality in the state of Washington may be radically different than what's happening in the state of Indiana, which also could mean Indiana's governor, doctors in the state, and everyone of a dignified role that has a say in this could end up giving Indiana the check mark, you're good to go. It could be two months later for a state like Washington, Oregon. I'm just picking names out of a hat. I'm not educated as to who could get the green light first, but what happens there? Let's say the entire, just for the sake of argument, let's say the entire Big Ten footprint was given the green light, you guys are good to go, everything's cleared, we feel safe, you guys can open camp July 1st. And there are still five out of 12 teams in the Pac-12 whose states and whose universities maybe and local dignitaries have not given them the green light. How do we, how do we work that? How does that operate? So you gotta have synchronicity. That's the first thing, and that's a really, really big hurdle that has to be overcome. Secondly, I have heard a lot of people talking about this empty stadium issue and what it would be like if we had to play games in an empty stadium. I heard Lane Kiffin this last week talking about how he just doesn't think it would happen. I've heard other head coaches. I've heard some folks in the media. I have spoken about this on this show, and I have told you, and I'll tell you again, I don't think that it's going to come to that. I think a lot's going to change over the next few months, and I'm going to end with that. But what I'm going to tell you next sort of sounds hypocritical, 
Ignore everything folks in the media say about empty stadiums. Ignore what coaches say. Ignore what players say. Pay attention only to what administrators say. They are the ultimate decision makers, even some of them who tell you doctors are going to make that decision. If a doctor came up to a bunch of university presidents and said, let's hold off until 2025, they'd laugh him out of the building. So ultimately, regardless of what people say, within reason, ADs and university presidents are going to make the call here. They understand how to look at college football as a television product. And so for the sake of this conversation, don't think about college football as you would normally think about it. The way you have to think about it in times like these is like a TV show. And if they can get the studio open, like we've done right now, there's no one else in this entire building. Normally there would be a thousand people in here right now, but it's me and Colin. But we were able to get in the studio, thanks to our overlords at CBS Sports granting us essential personnel access. So we're able to put on a show, therefore we're doing a show. If they can get stadiums open, if they can get players physically on campus, if they can get the necessary boxes checked, if they can travel and figure that stuff out, there's going to be a season. Because contrary to some very, very popular people's tweets yesterday, it is not in-stadium, at-the-gate revenue that matters nearly as much as TV contracts matter here. And the TV contracts are fulfilled as long as you give the TV a product to put on. So that's first and foremost in the minds of administrators and athletic directors and presidents. I don't care that it's going to be weird. Well, I do care, but it's not going to matter if it comes to this, whether it's going to be weird or it's going to change the dynamic or it's going to take away the passion and the pageantry. Everyone knows that. This is not a world in which you get a great choice and a terrible choice. Sometimes you get a terrible choice and a not so good choice. And that may be what we deal with in the fall. We'll see. I still believe time is our best friend here. I still believe a lot is going to change. Think about where we are right this second. We are April 16th right now, April 17th, 18th, 19th. So this Saturday was going to be the big spring football Saturday. A lot of the big teams were, I know Alabama was this Saturday, Georgia was this Saturday, a ton of teams were going to have their spring game this Saturday. Think about when it's a regular season, it's a regular year, think about coming out of that spring game, that G-Day game or that A-Day game, and then think about how long it seems there is until the season gets here. Okay, nothing's changed. Time, although relative, is still a constant. We still really do have that long until the season. We have got, from this Saturday, we would have like 90 days until media days. That's in early July. We would have and still do have well over 110, 120, 25-ish days until camps would open. Do you know how much can change? Do you know how much those data really the data that is ingested by models and produce those models. Do you know how much that can change? Do you know how much narrative can change? Perception can change? A lot can change. Think about where we were three weeks ago versus today. Suffice to say, a lot's changed, right? You're still sitting at home, so that hasn't changed. But maybe some other things have changed. That's going to continue to happen. So time is on our side, whereas normally you want to burn it at both ends in order to get to the season. Right now, I don't think anyone's in a particular hurry. We need as much time as possible between us and the season to hopefully let this play out. But narrative is going to shift. Facts are going to continue to shift that narrative. Hopefully, more facts come to light than what is currently coming to light. And I think that uh, ultimately, I have a feeling we'll be okay. We'll see. I absolutely have a feeling we'll have a regular season, though. A 2020 season 
even if it spills over into 2021. The podcast, <laughs> let me go ahead and get this out of the way. So the podcast, here's how it works. I thought that this was pretty self-explanatory, but that's my fault. I did a terrible job explaining this. Here's how the podcast works. Some of you don't like watching the full version on YouTube. It's just not as convenient for you. So what we do for you is we take the audio from the show and we release it as a podcast. So you can listen in your car on the way to work or you know when you go back to work, whatever the case may be. If you're working out, if you're jogging, some of you prefer that. And so the literal audio from this show is released the next day after we do a show on our podcast network. You can go anywhere you get your podcast and search Late Kick with Josh Pape. So the first thing we ask you to do, and if you don't want to search, there's a link in the show description right below the video right now, whether you're watching live or on replay. The first thing we ask you to do, if you do, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review and, and leave us a review there because I'm told by our podcast wizards that really, really helps us out. But here's the second thing that I want to ask you because right now, all you see in the podcast feed are replays of shows that we do on air. So in other words, everything you see in that podcast feed, you can also find on the YouTube channel. But I figured, since we've got some free time, why not give some bonus content? So I'm not gonna do it if no one's gonna listen. So I need to know from you. You can hit me up on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. I would ask that you follow me there anyway. We do a lot of extra during the week there. But you see my email address there. You got the comment section here. If you want us to start producing some extra bonus content, it would revolve week to week as to what it would be exactly. And just make it via podcast, let me know. If enough of you want it, we'll do it. If you don't, then I'll, I don't know, I'll just go jog myself and listen to someone else because it would be kind of weird to listen to yourself. But if you do want it, let me know. All right, let's move on. NFL drafts coming up. We don't fancy ourselves an NFL show. Never have, never will, and that's not changing. But I do want to address a couple of very high-profile guys that I have seen in person a whole, whole lot, and that's Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Joe Burrow. As I said to lead the show, this is the time of year where, unfortunately, squeaky wheels get a lot more grease. It does not pay, again, unfortunately, this time of year to look at elite prospects and just say, that's an elite prospect. It ends up paying a lot more if you just throw out some trash and see if it sticks to the wall. And even if it doesn't, well, you generated 15,000 clicks. So that's all well and good. Now, clickbait used to be all the rage. And then platforms like, for example, YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, platforms like YouTube, they got smart to that. And so they started rewarding you not for the amount of clicks that you could generate, but for the average watch time. You know, our live shows, this, was, this is pretty insane stat. Our live versions of Late Kick, do you know how, I haven't said this on air before, do you know on average how many minutes a viewer watches our live show? You guys watch about 21 minutes on average. I can't even begin to tell you how insane that number is and how much I appreciate that, but that basically means either you're coming in and clicking in and clicking out or you're just watching most of the show. We get rewarded for that because we're not putting out clickbait. Well, this time of year in the NFL draft world, clickbait still works, unfortunately. And so I've seen some of it surrounding Joe Burrow and surrounding Tua Tungavailoa lately. Let's just address the concerns. And I use the term concern very loosely because I don't truly believe these are concerns. Let me give you my take on both these guys. I've seen both of these guys. I tried to count earlier today. I don't know. I know that I've seen both of them from the sideline in person at least half a dozen times. It may be like 10 times for each of them. I think they are both franchise quarterbacks. I think they are both 10 to 15 year Hall of Fame caliber talents. I understand 
how much goes into that. And I understand how much that's out of their control goes into that. I'm just speaking about their physical and mental ability to translate to the next level. I've seen them both a lot. I've been around them on field, off field. They check every box. They are tailor-made, different personalities, but both of them tailor-made to lead an NFL franchise. And yet here we go. So we've got some criticism. Let's talk about the criticism here. Again, use the term very loosely. The criticism that was being thrown around as of last week and early this week about Joe Burrow is, of course, stop me where you've heard this before, and stop me if you can explain why this is a criticism. Well, he's a product of being in a really good offense and being surrounded by elite wide receiver talent. Well, two of those things are true. He was in a great offense, and he did have great wide receiver talent. I um, kind of chuckle every time someone says, well, he played with a lot of NFL wide receivers at LSU. You know where else he's going to play with NFL wide receivers? You know where else he's going to benefit from high-level NFL schemes? The league he's about to be drafted into. That's sort of why they call it NFL talent. That's the league he's about to go play in. So I don't know that that's a knock at all. And um, I don't know where we started, and I'm going to say we, they, I don't know where they, the people who claim this, I don't know where this idea started that if you produce and you take advantage of the elite weapons you have around you, how that won't translate to the next level. Fact of the matter is, if Joe Burrow is put in a situation that's built for him to win and tailored for him to win, he's going to win. I don't care what level of football we're talking about because that's the kind of guy he is. He is a quarterback who lit it up when he was supposed to light it up. But I want to ask you this. What was his biggest strength this past year? You watched, you probably watched most big LSU games. Was it three-step drop, get the ball out of his hand within two seconds every time before he could get hit? I don't necessarily remember that being Joe Burrow. He was good at that. His biggest strength was after stuff broke down. Ask Kirby Smart in Georgia, because they got to him some. What was his biggest strength? We're looking at that game right here. Uh, there were plays that he made last over 10 seconds and the reason is because of this stuff. You see this right here if you're watching the YouTube version? That kind of stuff right there, that's not a play design, guys. And there was no NFL receiver in the backfield allowing him to do all that. I think his skill set translates very well to the next level. And I think if he's put in a situation to succeed, he will succeed. And he will be a guy who could be a 10 to 15 year, again, like I said, future Hall of Fame caliber talent. Now, here's what happens a lot of times. The better you are, the higher you go in the draft, and chances are you could go to a very poor organization, and even the best quarterbacks in the world are not enough. They're not skilled enough. The league's too good. You're not skilled enough to overcome a terrible front office. You're not skilled enough to overcome terrible drafts around you. So again, there's a lot outside of your control that determines what your career is going to look like. What if Tom Brady were drafted by Oakland instead of Tampa Bay? We can never know. I think I have a pretty good idea of what would and wouldn't have happened. How about Tua? What's the concern here? Well, there's one valid concern. I don't have a problem with people pointing out the injury concern. I think that's first and foremost. I don't know that necessarily as many people point out the size anymore because of what guys like Russell Wilson have done. So I don't think people point out the size as much, although maybe you do, but I think more so it's the injury concern. Now that's a valid concern. Let me give you a little insight. I talked to someone from Alabama the, what are we, Thursday? Yeah, so it was this week I talked to someone from Alabama. Now here's what they believe. Number one, they believe he's as good to go as you could be right now, but that doesn't matter if he gets injured, you know, two years from now. So is he injury prone or not? That's the question. And is he, is he fragile, frail, or 
is he a guy who can be built to withstand a full NFL season? Here's what some people in Alabama think. Some people at Alabama, this goes back to Scott Cochran leaving there. There were, for the last few years, there were some pretty strong butting of heads type situations going on with the strength and conditioning approach at Alabama. What they had versus what up to and including the head man thought they needed to have moving forward there. And they were losing a lot of guys. They had a lot of injuries there. Tonga Vailoa was one of them who was injury prone. Now here's what they think at Alabama. I have no clue if there's validity to this. I'm not qualified to know. I'm qualified to tell you what people at Alabama have told me. And they believe that he was a victim of some of the same things that other guys there were victims of. They believe there were flaws in their strength and conditioning approach. That's what a lot of them believe there. They also believe they've rectified that with the duo that they just hired from Indiana. I have no way to know this. You have no way to know this. I'm just throwing it out there because I like to give you as much as we can on the air. Here's the other thing, though. The other thing is, next to that, what is the concern? I heard, I'm not going to mention the names. I don't dignify this stuff. I heard a notable draft analyst, shall we say, go on air the other day on national radio or television, whatever the case was, and said Tonga Vailoa wasn't one of his top five quarterbacks in this draft. Now, you explain that to me. Again, this is what passes for national analysis. I think a lot of you choose this product because of such foolishness, and I appreciate it. But here's what didn't happen. What didn't happen is after that absurd statement was made, what didn't happen, which should have happened, to follow is a list of the five quarterbacks that said analyst had ahead of Tonga Vailoa. It's because it's nonsense. It's not thought through. And it gets rewarded with a national platform, all the while if said analyst was actually asked to list his five quarterbacks in front of him. Five is a number he gave out. No one asked him. Give me the five quarterbacks ahead of Tua Tonga-Vailoa. He would have listed a couple of them, and then he would have tied himself into an intellectual pretzel, trying to get three more out of his mouth. But again, that's the season we're in for the NFL draft. So again, to make this plain and clear, I believe Joe Burrow and Tua Tonga-Vailoa are both generational talents. A lot of people are going to play the game of who would you take, and my answer to this, anytime I got two elite talents, whether they be coaches, players, whatever, my answer is always, and it is with this situation as well, I'll just take the one you don't want. You, you get first pick, I'll take the one that's left over. Herschel versus Bo, who's better? You get your first pick, I'll be more than happy to settle with who's left over. Joe Burrow, Tuatonga Vailoa, same deal. I'll give you first pick, I'll be happy to take whatever's left over. I just know this. What you don't want to be in 10 years is the GM who passed on either one of these dudes because you bought into this sort of thing. This sort of thing gets you a ticket in Section 333. You're running NFL franchises. Got to be better than that. I think they will be better than that. I think you'll hear these guys' names called pretty early in the first round come NFL draft night. Let's move on. We've got, uh, actually, I wouldn't call it breaking news because this happened a little while ago. But to, uh, let me see this. Oh, I thought I saw something else in the chat. So uh, earlier today, news out of Los Angeles, Southern Cal quarterback JT Daniels enters his name into the transfer portal. And it got the attention of a lot of people, most notably anyone who needs or thinks they need a quarterback out there. So I had a team that came right to the forefront. I told Colin when I walked in, he happens to be a supporter of said team, and he immediately shook his head. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely yes. Definitively, yes. 
So I'm going to tell you who it is, but I'm going to read you because I, I went to 247sports.com. I wanted to see what our guys had put up on this. I, I saw in some of the uh, some of the backroom chats that we are privy to, I saw us talking about this earlier today. A number of our guys had weighed in, what they were hearing. So there is a pretty informed piece right now. If you want to, as of an hour ago, it was on the front page of 247sports.com. But uh, our Greg Biggins and Chris Hummer, they just kind of put together – I think it's seven, one, two, three, four. Yeah, so seven potential destinations for JT Daniels. Now, the first one, let's go ahead and get this one out of the way. USC would probably still be the betting favorite here. There, there is some thinking out there that maybe he puts his name in the transfer portal to explore all options. Clay Helton, head coach at USC, put out a statement today saying, we're working hand in hand with him. We're going to help him explore all options. We'll see what's best for him. But I mean, if you're, a, if you're a, a betting man or woman, there's a pretty darn good chance he just ends up right back at Southern California. And what the thinking here is, is he's talented enough if he's healthy. And there are differing reports as to whether he's healthy right now. But if he wins the starting job out there, he's a guy who has the raw talent to be talking NFL draft this time next year. But he still has two years to play. What he could do is stay at Southern Cal, graduate, and then surely be eligible to go anywhere after the season or maybe after he graduates. Now, we also have another piece of NCAA legislation that's winding its way through NCAA court, if you will, which is eventually going to come to a vote, and it's going to be in the near future, and that is whether you're going to be able to transfer one time without penalty. Most people, I've taken the temperature in the industry 80 to 20 think it will pass. Does that apply to this year or not? Does it start in 2021? No one knows. But he may be able to move around or he may have to wait a year to graduate and then move wherever he wants to. But Southern Cal could be the ultimate destination. This could all be for not. Washington is in this. I don't have much to add with Washington or Ole Miss. These are just two names in the piece by Craig Biggins and Chris Hummer that were mentioned. Florida State. Signed two quarterbacks this last cycle. First thing that came to my mind was terrible offensive line. I don't know that it's necessarily an ideal situation. You also can't know this. You can't know if Mike Norvell and his staff are interested in taking JT Daniel. I'm sure we'll eventually hear some rumblings and figure that out in the near future, but there's no way to really know this. We're just throwing around some names here. What about Michigan? You got Dylan McCaffrey. You got Joe Milton there. Uh, Shea Patterson has moved on. Could that be a destination? I saw a lot of people with that name trending in their minds earlier today. LSU. Now, this one's interesting. There's some ties here from Ed Orgeron's time on the West Coast. I think he personally recruited JT Daniel. And you may say to yourself, well, you got Miles Brennan already. Well, that's true. No program worth its salt is going to turn down what they believe to be a quarterback that they're capable of winning with. You want as many of those on your roster as possible. We just got done talking about Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Need I remind you how he saw his first meaningful action with Alabama? You can never have too many of those guys. And if JT Daniel were to look at LSU and say, you got Miles Brennan there already? You know what? I still think I can compete there. Well, Ed Orgeron's not going to turn him down. If they like him, I mean, he already recruited him once, so certainly they, they thought enough of him to recruit him. I don't see a reason why their opinion would have changed all that much, but here's the one that popped in my mind immediately, and that is the University of Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt. They sit there right now with Jared Garantano. Is that a guy that they're going to compete in the SEC Eastern Division with? My short opinion is no. Is Brian Maurer that guy? My short opinion would be no. Harrison Bailey, I believe the moment he stepped on campus, was their most talented option, but he is still a true freshman who does not have the benefit of spring, who does not have the benefit of a normal summer workout program. No one knows what we have with him, but it wouldn't hurt 
to kick the tires on JT Daniels. Now, to this point, again, this just happened a little while ago. I don't really know any more than you do on this. I saw some people who think maybe it's this team, maybe it's that team. Not enough for me to run with here. Just my personal thought here immediately was Tennessee. Let's see how this pans out. Could be something to it, could be nothing to it. I asked you earlier in the uh, evening if you had any questions. We're going to wrap the show with them, so let's run through this. Now, the other day, I, I kind of ended up kicking a hornet's nest. We did what I thought was a nice, innocent, really light, feel-good segment a couple of weeks ago about what the five best places I've covered a game at in the Southeastern Conference, what those five best places were. And I thought I specified cover cover a game, not sit in the stands, cover a game. So a lot more goes into it than just how loud the stadium is. And I didn't put Auburn in the top five. I didn't put Florida in the top five. And a lot of people were bent out of shape about that. So Luke Wildman comes to my rescue here. And one of the first questions in the chat tonight was top five SEC stadiums by game day atmosphere. All right. Now that's a different question. It does not take into account what my experience covering it is. Let's just talk game day atmosphere. I've been to all the big games. I've been to all the big stadiums when they're having big games. There is nothing when Alabama plays LSU in Baton Rouge night atmosphere. There's nothing like that in college football, at least that I've experienced. I have not been to a game at Penn State. So that's the only thing. When I listen and talk to other people in the industry who have covered uh, the sport at a national level, Penn State's the one that always is on the tip of everyone's tongue. I have not been able to experience that. We're talking SEC right now. LSU's number one. Alabama is number two. Alabama is a really, really big feel. Everything about Alabama feels big. It is rich in tradition. I've been to so many games there that it becomes second nature for me to experience that. But it's a special, special place. And the thing about Bama is for a while now, there's been this complacency that set in, not amongst the team, but amongst the fan base. You guys know this to be true. A lot of you Alabama fans know this to be true. And so a lot of them, when you're amongst yourselves, you'll complain, man, our stadium atmosphere, you know, when like uh, Mississippi State comes in here, you know, we're up 31 to three. It's just, it's not very electric. They know when to pick and choose their moments, though. I was on the field for the LSU game this past year. I took someone with me who had not experienced that game before, who had not covered that game before, and he was on the field alongside me. And all I got to do is ask him about it. But I experienced it as well. That's an incredible atmosphere. When they got a big game there, when they truly feel threatened, which is not very often, but when they do feel threatened and they're in sort of wounded animal mode a little bit, that's an incredible place to be. My number three is Texas A&M. I talked about this last week, I think. A&M's off the radar. They are not a perennially elite playoff contending program yet. And yet, when I was there this past year, already, everything about that place is awesome. The stadium's awesome. Everything about it's modernized. But from a game day atmosphere perspective, it's very unique. Now, it's a, it's a unique culture and tradition unto anything else in the Southeastern Conference, in a conference that prides itself on unique culture and tradition. Texas A&M... If and when Jimbo Fisher turns them into an actual playoff contending team, this place will, to me, finally get its rightful claim as one of the very best venues in America. It's ma Look at that place. It's massive. There's a lot of uniqueness to it, as I said, but it's insanely loud. The, uh, it's one of the places where you can feel the ground shake, actually, when you're standing on the natural surface. Uh, Neyland Stadium's another one like that. You feel the ground shake because there's stuff under the ground. Therefore, it's sort of hollow what you're standing on. 
and uh, you can feel the ground shake there. Really, really incredible place. My number four is Auburn. I've seen so many big games at Auburn. I've seen them upset Georgia. I've seen them upset Alabama. Um, that's a place where, at its peaks, you would probably argue is as charged as any place in America. I've also felt like the energy that Bruce Pearl has brought there from a basketball standpoint has sort of meshed. Like he's done something in the SEC a lot of folks try to do, but very few have perfected the art of. And that is dovetailing the passion of football into the basketball arena. Bruce Pearl's been able to do that. But to be able to dovetail passion, you first have to have it. And Jordan-Hare Stadium, really, really loud. It aggravates the you-know-what out of Alabama and Georgia. And I know exactly what they're talking about. I've been there. When Auburn will play games, you'll watch them on film, and they'll play games that look so average, and they look so lethargic, and they'll mess around with like Jacksonville State or somebody, and yet when Georgia rolls in there, they play with their hair on fire, and the entire atmosphere, everyone in there, 87,000 and change, they react accordingly. And when Alabama comes in there, they take it up to even another level, and you think to yourself, you know, almost, why do you guys have to take this stuff so seriously and make this place so hostile? But that's their job, and they do it very well. Number five was just there this past year for the Auburn game, and that is Florida. Uh, the swamp is pretty insane, too. Now, the reason I didn't put this in the top five of places to cover a game is because I've only covered a visiting team there, and the visiting media accommodations at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium are abhorrent. They are terrible. I've been in broom closets bigger than what they give you there, and it's also about 92 degrees with very little air circulation. Again, though, that's part of home field advantage on the road in college football. So I don't bemoan it, even as I call it abhorrent. But from a game day atmosphere standpoint, really, really good place. So I'd go uh, from five to one, Florida, Auburn, A&M, Bama, LSU. Neyland's not on this list. As soon as Tennessee gets good and I finally get to cover games at Tennessee when they're relevant, I think they, they've got to take the place of someone in this top five. Because even when I've been up there and they haven't been good, it's still been a pretty good atmosphere. There just hasn't been a lot to be excited about there for quite a while. Uh, James Cook asks, Mike Leach, Lane Kiffin, better hire? The answer here to me is Lane Kiffin. I talked to someone on the NFL side of things about this actually last week. And the thought that they had was kind of the thought that I've had. First part, it was kind of a two-parter. The first part is, three-parter actually. First part is, is Mike Leach going to be able to recruit at a good enough level down here. His scheme is meant to overcome some recruiting deficiencies maybe. You don't get away with that 12 weeks of the year down here. That's question one. I don't have answers to any of the questions, by the way. That's question one. Question number two was, does his offense translate down here? It worked in Lubbock, Texas. It worked in Pullman, Washington. The defensive back talent that you consistently face on a week-in, week-out conference play basis in the SEC is something that a lot of people don't necessarily think that his offense is going to be able to overcome. The third part of that three-part mystery around Mike Leach is himself. He's already gotten himself in a little bit of hot water over some stuff he's tweeted, but here's what this person and myself, hiccup, sorry about that, this is what I'm ready to see. Mike Leach has a tendency of throwing his players under the bus to the national media, well, to the regional media that covers his team. And while Mississippi State is not exactly, exactly Notre Dame, there's a much brighter spotlight on him now than has ever been on him thus far in his head coaching career. And if they lose a game or two and he starts throwing players under the bus, 
combined with some of the friction already that exists because of some statements he's made on Twitter, whether you had a problem with him or not, his players, some of them did. I don't know how long that act lasts there. He could prove me wrong at every turn. But I like Lane Kiffin's hire better. I think he's going to recruit the state of Mississippi very well. I think he can expand their recruiting borders beyond the state of Mississippi offensively. I think what he does is going to be more successful at Ole Miss than what Mike Leach is going to try to do. And I'm talking long term here, what Mike Leach is going to try to do at Mississippi State. So I think overall, the program at Ole Miss got a better ambassador and a better guy qualified to lead them than did Mississippi State, just the way I see it. Moving on, moving on, moving on. Uh, A couple more here. David asks, is there any G5 team that could become a perennial New Year's Six contender that is not currently? Now, I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path here because the team I'm going to mention is horrible right now. Uh, Central Florida's there already. Uh, Houston and Memphis, those are ones that you could go for. You could also go to Cincinnati, but those names are already largely in the mix. Now, here's my first one that is reasonable. That's Louisiana Tech. That's where Skip Holtz is. I got a buddy that was just hired there, spoke glowingly of the culture at Louisiana Tech. Louisiana Tech is a place that I think they won 10 games or something like that last year. So they're already in a pretty good position. I think Skip Holtz is leading a program right now that if they're able to take one more step, one more rung up the ladder, they're in that conversation. They are a team that you turn around in October and early November in a normal calendar season and say, man, they could actually... They could be the G5 team that goes to the Peach Bowl or the Cotton Bowl or whatever the case may be. But let me tell you another one that I wish would get its act together, and that's East Carolina. There's been a revolving door there, and East Carolina is a program that I think is pretty uniquely positioned. It's a good geographical region. You can get good recruiting ties there. You have access to the Carolinas. You can get into the South. You can also get into the Tidewater area of Virginia. East Carolina is not a good program right now. Uh, No two ways about that. But that's one that if the right mixture of staff, personnel, and roster get in there. That's one that I'd be excited to watch. Uh, Ironically enough, we just spoke about Skip Holtz. Uh, Bailey Myers. Yes, Bailey Myers. Favorite song, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Moving on. Last question. Stephen White, this year's Joe Burrow. Is there a Joe Burrow out there this year? Get ready, because this question is going to be asked from now until eternity. Who is this year's 2019 LSU? Who is this year's Joe Burrow? My answer, nine times out of 10, is going to be no one. I will say this, though. If there's a program out there that's built to roughly duplicate the blueprint that LSU just pulled off, and if there is a quarterback that's in a position, possibly, theoretically, to duplicate what Joe Burrow just did, not in terms of overall stats, but just in theory, that's got to be Jamie Newman in Georgia. That's got to be it. You've got the loaded roster there. You've got a lot of up-and-coming receivers, really good receivers stable, easily the best they've had there in a generation at the skill spots, your terminology, not mine. And you got a quarterback that's coming via transfer. Now, Burrow had been there two years, whereas Newman, this will be his first year there. But you got a championship-caliber defense there. In other words, you have a lot of boxes already checked. You have a lot of things already in place. A lot of systems are go at Georgia. That They bring in a new offensive coordinator in Todd Munkin. You brought in Joe Brady. I know he wasn't a coordinator, but you got a new influence there in the coach's box. You got a new quarterback. You got a new way of doing things. You got a lot of weapons already on campus. If there is a situation out there, There's a pin prick on a map where you could say, right there, those are the folks that could do what LSU did last year. Could be Georgia. 
I mean, the taste is fresh in George's mouth. If anyone has seen up close and personal what LSU 2019 was all about, it was Georgia. They had a really good defense, ton of injuries, and still a defense that was able to limit LSU until they couldn't limit LSU anymore. Kirby Smart looked around and said, I got to get me some of that. Hired a coordinator, got a quarterback transfer, then spring gets taken from him, which makes me question ultimately how far they'll be able to be bought in into any kind of offensive overhaul, especially when you know you can win with that defense. But Georgia and Jamie Newman, that's where I would look. We appreciate you being here tonight. Do me a favor, if you haven't already tuned out, you haven't, uh, click that thumbs up button. The likes really, really, really help us and subscribe to the channel while you're here. The Late Kick Podcast, remember, I want your comments on that. The question on the table right now is, would you be interested in some bonus content there? Just a little something extra for us to sprinkle out. Don't know what the set schedule would be. I do know that as far as Late Kick goes, every Thursday night at 7 Central, 8 Eastern, every Sunday night at 7 Central, 8 Eastern. I think I said that right both times. We're going to be here come pretty much anything but being banned from the building. So we appreciate you tuning in. We'll see you back here this time Sunday night. Until then, have a great weekend. Stay safe. I'm Josh Pate for Colin for Aaron. This is The Late Kick. See you guys.